This is part four of the 50th episode special where I look back on some of the most powerful ideas, concepts, theories, and even stories that have been shared on this show. And in this part, I'm going to be looking back on segments from episodes 30 to 40. So without any further ado, let's dive straight into the list. In the first clip, I have Napta founder Sophie Smith, who introduces a thought experiment for entrepreneurs where you can really gauge whether a company is right for you. And she equates it to love at first sight, which I find very interesting. In the second clip, we have popular actor Mario Silva, who talks about the differences between Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler acting techniques. And this is a clip that's become really popular over time, has also been referenced in a few acting students' theses. And this is something I take a lot of pride in, by the way. In the third clip, we have Emirati magician Moeen Al-Bastaki, who talks about the difference between magic tricks, which is involved trickery, sleight of hand versus real magic that really make you feel something and connect to something beyond just that trick itself. In the fourth clip, I have Ravina Kantrigula, who shares a really powerful story about her mother's journey from Malkipuram in Andhra Pradesh to Dubai and the butterfly effect it had on her and her siblings' lives. In the fifth clip, I have my good friend and popular influencer Daksh Jindal, who talks about five books that really changed his life. In the sixth clip, I have ESPN Crick Info writer Jared Kimber, who explores whether cricket is more than just a silly game and the impact it might have on people's lives. In the seventh clip, I have ISKCON monk Arjun Anandas, who explains the Bhagavad Gita in just under nine minutes. In the eighth clip, I have Jalebi Baby singer Shweta Subram, who shares the untold story behind the making of the song about how Tesha refused to give her credits for a song which effectively has her voice and is iconic for her voice and for the chorus that she sang. And this is a segment I find really powerful that I want to get across as much as possible. In the ninth clip, I have my good friend Richin Cabra, who explores whether money can really buy happiness. And he introduces a very interesting theory known as the hedonic treadmill theory. And finally, in the last clip, I have my good friend and singer, Samrudha Sunil Kumar, who explores the differences between different singing voices. And she uses Shreya Ghoshal and Sunidhi Chauhan as examples. This is no time. If you like what you see, then do hit subscribe on YouTube, follow on Spotify or rate 5 stars on Apple Podcasts. This is more than just a passion project. I really believe in the vision of it. So if you'd like to see it continue, do consider making a donation on Patreon, Anchor, Instagram. Pick your poison. If not through monetary channels, then do consider leaving your likes and comments and sharing these episodes. Your engagement really, really, really goes a long way. For other forms of love and support, you can follow this channel on Instagram or Twitter or follow me personally. And now it's no time. In the past, you founded this plastic recycling company in Sierra Leone and My Zindagi, the doctor finding app in Pakistan. And you've spoken that at a point, you realized that this was not for you. And when it came to Napna instead, you felt this is it. This is the perfect one for me and this is what I want to do. How hard is that decision? Because it seems like because founders, naturally it's your idea. You've put so much work into it. You've put your heart and soul into it. How hard is it to step away from it and do you think this is a mistake that a lot of founders still make? I think it's the easiest decision in the world. Um, it feels like it's like it's a decision you can't make until it's there and then it's the easiest. So when I, I Napta was my fifth company in four years. Um, I actually set up before um, Synapse, which built my Zindagi, before um, Le Plastics. I had a, a health tech consultancy and a software um, development company, mostly focused on health technologies out of London. 
and um i yeah you 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 learn a lot about setting up companies in the early days and so i enjoyed them because there was a, a steep learning curve um and i still care a lot about sustainability obviously the the the, the health thread has has been present in um in, in many ways or in all of them in some way um always had a fascination with emerging markets because i think so the middle east africa south asia um because here there's always been to me the greatest perceived need um but but when so i i had i set up um Le plastics in september 2016 then i moved here with my husband um for his job actually and i went to speak at a conference in kuwait on diabetes and when i was there i chatted extensively with the organizer um not about diabetes but about the fact that i was pregnant and he then sent me a whole load of stats on women's health in the region about a month later and they were they were they were pretty terrible so you know 80% of breast cancer is diagnosed at stage 4 for example um and the difference between survival rates stage 1 and stage 2 you have a 99% survival rate so of cancers caught very early at stage 4 it's 27% and even that's probably a little optimistic for for most people it's terminal um and there there were just there were loads of stats and it 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 made me realize how and i i had had the first part of my um kind of care on the nhs it really brought home to me the discrepancies in terms of access and opportunity from a healthcare perspective that existed between the established western markets and the rest of the world um but as soon as he said do you want to do something in women's health together the answer was yes and i i said i need a few months to hand over my existing business interests um i closed down the the companies which were still open and operating in the uk and we were meant to wait until my son was born to start work on the company but then he was late so we started work on the day he was due 21st of march 2017 yes also mother's day here also my my co-founder's birthday so that's yeah m- many things <laughs> many conflated things in the end um but the decision to the decision to um found nabta and the decision to build nabta and continue to build nabta evidence has been very easy and i remember when i set up my first company and i was at a um at an event so at web summit in ireland and we had been kind of pitching to different people and after after this event i was out in the pub chatting to someone i'd met earlier and he said he said to me now listen don't take this the wrong way but i'm 100% sure that this is not what you're meant to do but i know that you're meant to have like you i know that you're meant to be running a company and when you find the company that you're meant to run you'll know and i was a little bit insulted at the time i because i thought no this is the company that i'm running this is the company i want to run it wasn't um i think one of the signs that entrepreneurs can look for is when they are able to focus exclusively on one thing you know this same guy said you need to want this company more than anything in order in order to make a success of it and again you know i was like well thinking i i want to have a family i'm going to have other priorities am i ever going to want a company more than anything and um again as soon as we founded nabta it was apparent that yes in fact i would want a company more than anything and that and it it doesn't mean that i don't love my family and that they're not 
my number one priority. It means that when I'm in the shower, I am thinking about NABTA. And when I'm driving, I'm thinking about NABTA. And I don't find it difficult to work into the early hours of the morning, even in the midst of pregnancy when by all accounts I should be asleep because I'm working on and thinking about NABTA and there's not a day that goes by where it is not in my head. And so I think I realized latterly what he meant by you have to want it more than anything. It just has to be that thing that you can't put down no matter how much you want to. And as soon as that happens, you know you've got your company. It's very fascinating the kind of relationship founders have with companies. I find a lot of analogies and relationships here as well when you mentioned that finding out what's right for you and stepping away from it when you know it was wrong. So I want to extend one more analogy from relationships here. I don't know if it works. Do you think love at first sight also works with companies and founders? Did you have a moment? So you mentioned obviously when the co-founder said you want to start it, you said yes. But did you have this moment where you just sat back and you had this moment of clarity, one specific moment where it just all came together and you could see the path forward? Um, I think it was, yeah, for me, NABTA was very much, was very much love at first sight. And I don't know if it was because I'd had a few companies. So I, I knew a little bit what I was looking for, what I was, or what I wasn't looking for. But, um, you know, I have a, I have a very, very busy mind. And, um, I think if I, the, the wonderful thing about NABTA and the wonderful thing about women's health is that it is such an untapped opportunity. It has been neglected for such a long time that um, like I could work on this company for the rest of my life and, and there would still be significant progress to be made. And that's a very satisfying thought, you know, to have a, what then becomes a kind of lifetime vocation, something that you can continue to build when you're old and gray and slow and something that you're still going to care about and something that you still know is going to be impactful. Um, that, that for me, I think was, was one of the, you know, the kind of like electric moments that you get where it's like, Ooh, this is going to keep me busy for a very long time. And that was, a, yeah, that was one of the things that, that contributed to the love at first sight, I guess. You have attended Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute. And studied under Vincent Donofrio as well. Yeah. Uh, Lee Strasberg was the man behind method acting. And he used to often say that actors need to try and find points of similarity between a character and their own life. And try to use emotional recall and self-analysis and their own memories to be able to create those emotions on stage. So if there's a character who's sad, then you need to equate that with a life occurrence, which was also sad in your life. And then use that. And then... This is like a boxing match and you have strong opponents of this technique. And we have Stella Adler on the other hand, who always says that your own life is not enough and you don't have the enough range of emotions to actually portray it on screen. And you need to use your imagination and also research to be able to actually do a character well. So I wanted to check with you, what has worked better for you? Have you always on stage tried to resonate more with your own life or are you someone who likes to do his research as well before he goes on stage? So <clears throat> I believe that, I mean, when I take on a role, I need to, I need to do some research in it, despite how much I think I know about the role. I need to make sure that I, that I look at, that I look at, that I can be really honest with the individual and not, and try to, try to grab certain realities and keep them there. And yes, it's good to play with the imagination too, but see, here's the thing. Um, 
it all started like the acting techniques, as you know, it all started with Stanislavski, right? The thing about Adler is that she was the only one who actually studied with Stanislavski. And these guys, man, like these guys are these Russian actors, man. They, they're really something else. Um, at least uh, back in the day, um, they were just extremely committed to the artistic aspect of it. And Strasberg really respected that because he wanted to put that. That's why he started the actor studio and the group theater in America because he was influenced by, obviously, Stanislavski to do this. Again, Adler was the only one who actually studied with him. What Strasberg did is he studied Stanislavski's technique and he added what he thought Stanislavski was missing. But the most important thing that people always forget is that, like you said so yourself, you were like, oh, what's required to do? Oh, is this enough? Oh, is this not enough? It's just medicine. I, I promise you, acting techniques are nothing but medicine. That means that if you're not sick, you don't take medicine. So if I get a role and I'm like, oh, I can do this. Oh, when he says this line, I need to cry. I can do that because this line makes me want to cry. So what the hell do I need to do anything? I don't got to do anything. I just got to do it. Now, if I'm having trouble with a line, oh, and this line, you know, he's, he's breaking up with, with his girl. And I don't understand how could he possibly do that to her? All right, well, let's do some research. Now let's look at some techniques to help me deliver that. Because at the end of the day, I got to deliver what it says on the script. People are paying money to see this, right? The director says, all right, cool. I understand your frustration or your concerns, but you got to have to do it because this is the play. And you got to do it. That's when the techniques come in. That's when everything kicks in that you start using. Emotional memory, sensory work, all animal exercises, all of this is when you're struggling or if you want to bring an extra layer of authenticity into the performance then of course you work a little bit further with it i like to do it i like to to include certain kinds of i mean sensory work just in general because it increases sensitivity um and it makes you it's it's really beautiful because it it's you're able to relax whilst keeping the adrenaline and and remaining impulsive I think that's the most beautiful thing you can have as an actor. To be completely relaxed and aware of all your surroundings, but not be dead. You're, you're ready to go. It's like a highly trained like military. Like you're, you're relaxed, but you're ready to fire at any moment. You know what I mean? And that's what Strasbourg's technique taught me. That we can do that. And there's a lot of things you can do to help you commit to what you're doing. Now, with Adler... See, the thing, uh, look, I don't, I don't know them. I, I, they, they all died before I was even born. But working with people who were right next to them throughout their peak times, they told me that apparently Adler, she didn't agree with the effect of memory. She thought it was too much. It was too traumatic. That's why she went off and she wanted to do her own thing, which is the use of imagination. Buddy, everything is imagination at the end of the day. That's what makes no sense. It's like, oh, imagine that you are. Well, if I'm imagining something, it's because I've experienced it. I can't just create a unicorn from. No, unicorns already exist because I've seen one already. So I know the concept of it. So how can I imagine something out of thin air? Even if I tell you right now, imagine you're skydiving. Have you been skydiving? Before? I haven't. Imagine you're skydiving right yeah. now. 
picture yourself jumping off a plane. Mm -hmm. You can see it. I you can, can imagine it. I Why? Because you've seen other people do it. Yep. Because you understand the concept of it. That's how you're imagining it. Is that enough? No, because you don't actually know what it's like. You don't know what it's like. So that's what I'm saying. You can use your imagination all you want. But remember, even, with, even while using your imagination, it still comes from a reality that you've experienced or that you've seen. So that's why, look, there are certain people out there like Adler who was sensitive enough. She did not need effective memory. She did, and I know a lot of actresses that are like that. I know actresses that you start doing a scene and I say, shut up. And then they start crying because they're that sensitive. So what do I need to give them effective memory for? Maybe for a different, um, because remember, effective memory is not just crying. It's laughing. It's getting angry. It's satisfaction. It's any emotion. It's just that actors always have a problem with crying. They're always concerned. Can I actually it. push back on that? Because Adler's not here to defend herself. I know. So I have, <laughs> I have only one quote from her, sure. which I would love to check with you. So she had said in the past that drawing on the emotions I experienced, for example, when my mother died, to recreate a role on stage is sick and schizophrenic. If that is acting, then I don't want to do it. Do you think there's some element of truth to that? That the fact that you're reusing memories that are associated with a certain person morbidly, maybe let's say a moment of sadness in her case where her mother died. Do you think that in a way is exploiting that memory of her mother? Yeah. So here's the thing. Number one, from what I do know about Adler is that she would act no matter what, because she was one of the, the actors. Again, she's not here to defend herself yeah. and I don't know her personally, but I'm just speaking from what I've heard. So anybody feel free to correct me. But from what I heard is she wanted to be a movie star. And that's, that was uh, the group theater's problem with having her, that they knew that the moment she gets called upon Hollywood, she's going to go. So she would act nevertheless. Now, is it sick to exploit something? Absolutely. It is always sick to exploit something. But here's the thing. Don't do it then. Why would you choose that memory? There's a million other memories you could choose. And if there isn't, then don't do it. That's what I'm saying. Nobody's forcing you to do it. Now, how committed are you? Because there's people in this world that will do a lot of things inside their head that nobody else knows, but they know. So yes, is it sick as an actor to be going through something? I was talking about this with my friend and he was having an argument with this girl and they were going at it. And he told me, he was like, dude, it was so funny because the whole time while she was yelling at me, I was like, I could use this in a scene. <laughs> and I was like, yes, exactly. And he was like, yeah, man, but like, I feel so bad because she's like spewing fire at me. And in my head, I'm just like. It's a character that you can portray. Um, in his head, he's like, in this scene, and what I got to do. Oh, this I'm is gonna, perfect. He's like, what am I feeling right now? Where, where is it? The, is it in my stomach? I feel anger here in my stomach. My fists keep clenching. You know, he's oh, thinking that's about. That's amazing, yeah. You are. You are exploiting that situation. Technically, yes, you are. However, if you want to look at it in that negative sense of exploiting something, fine. I'm more when it comes to acting and for when it comes to anything that you're passionate about, I believe everybody should always be the cup is half full. So for me, it's not about exploiting the negativity aspect. It's about embracing something positive out of it. Because in life, you're going to suffer, man, no matter what. Nobody's going to live a, a full life being like every single day was a perfect day for me. Nobody. It doesn't matter if you're royalty. Man, diseases will get you. Mother nature will get you. Society will get you. Any, any, they will, things will get you. 
So as an actor, if you're able to embrace all this negativity to use something positive out of it, why not? And that's what I mean. Sometimes I'll be deeply crying about something and I'll take a deep breath and I'll remember how I'm feeling and I'll, and I'll, and I'll capture it as much as I can. And then when I go on stage and I start reliving that and start feeling it again, it sort of makes me feel joy because one, it's very truthful. Two, it connects me back to that reality of whatever had happened. And I don't think it's a negative thing because despite the person that I'm thinking about, I'm connecting back with that individual. I'm creating that sense of reality yet again. I mean, there's no other profession in this world where they will tell you crying is good. Good. Please keep crying. Oh my God, everybody promotion for this guy for crying <laughs> promotion for this guy for flipping the table in anger. But in acting, you will, you show that kind of raw emotion, that kind of, you know, reality and people will be like, thank you. So you could, Stella Adler could see it as exploiting. I see it as something negative turned positive. Oh, and, and the last thing about it is that, is it worth it? Well, you tell me, how great of an actor do you want to be? You could be like Seth Rogen, who takes, uh, I mean, no hate to the guy. I don't want hate mail from Seth Rogen. He's I, watching. Good. <laughs> um, yeah. No, no, no. Here's the thing. I love the guy. I think that his movies are amazing. Same with Adam Sandler. Well, Adam Sandler, I do believe he is, he is a genius in his own way, though, if I'm being honest. Um, and he is a very good actor. He he proved that in Uncut Gems, and actually in Punch Drunk Love. You watched that movie? Oh, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also in SNL, he, he. I mean, this guy works hard. He works very hard. But again, you can choose. If you don't want, again, nobody's pointing a gun to your head. All right. If somebody gives you a role that you feel is too much for you, nobody's telling you to do it. Go do something else. Go do some romantic comedy on Netflix that people are going to love and they're going to watch and nobody's going to get mentally affected by it. But if you want to work with Darren Aronofsky, well, <laughs> that's a different level of commitment. So that's, that's all I can say. All right. How much are you willing to put in? Because that's what's going to show at the end of the day. Because we all die eventually. So eventually when you die, what do you want to be remembered for? For the easy road or the bumpy, in my opinion, inevitable road that we all go through that leaves a bigger impact? Again, I'm not judging anybody for the choices that they make. All I'm saying is nobody's pointing a gun at you. You choose what you want to choose. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. Oh, but then they won't cast me anything else. Well, then go finance your own thing and go do your own thing or do something in a smaller budget. I'm sorry, you can't be a movie star because it's the only job that they offered you and you, you, you rejected it because you thought it was going to do something to you mentally. Well, thank you for letting somebody else step in and take that role then because there was somebody out there who is willing to do it. And I don't think that's a negative thing. So how do you view magic? Do you think magic is learning skills of sleight of hand, misdirection, suggestions, hypnosis a bit and... Uh, reading body language and showmanship? Do you think magic is all about learning those skills and then marketing that as a performance? Or do you think magic is still that mystical element that you can't explain why it is? It's more of the emotion and the feeling inside. Do you think 
magic is like anything like like learning the guitar or something of that sort where you're putting up a few skills you're becoming very good at how you look at people and how you use your hands so you're doing something on the side a lot of misdirection or is it more of the wonder and awe that you create in people see i i think it's 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 how the performer would want to take the magic forward if you would want to be the slide of hand guy that want to impress people by doing a couple of slide of hands on social media then or your to your friends then you can be that but i think you could go deeper than that i think uh, um i in some of my tv appearances i talk about a mysterious creature that i talk to which i call abdo where i get my answers from when you are thinking of something um when i am on my tv appearances i put on a candle and i talk on riddles um you could be that you could be that and then create a deeper experience for the individual yeah. i read people's palms i tell them about themselves without even meeting them beforehand i do tarot cards i do all that stuff also so it's it's how you would want to the people to perceive you as a magician is he a trickster that comes to the party and just makes everybody uh happy with the magic that he he creates or even if the guy is walking and looking at you you would think oh he's he's reading my mind right now please don't read my don't shake my hand because you will know a lot of information from me so so it's the way that you would want to to be perceived by the people you know what i mean is like or you could be in between like what the usual tv magicians are like david copperfield is not this dark mystical person uh he's not that you know that party guy the party magician guy he's the person in between uh chris angel is more dark because of the way that he dresses himself the gothic look that he's got for some time i was actually if you go to very old videos of mine like 8 9 years ago i was i was taking that path for a while so i took that path i love the uh the undertaker wrestler yes so he was my favorite when i was a small child so when i got into magic and i was going on tv i got that kind of look and brought it to my character but that was for the, for some short period of time and then i went to my arabic look i think it's all about what is your identity what do you want people to see you to me when i started being on tv 12 years ago i wanted to be the arab magician the guy that represents his region so i dresses i dressed an arabic dress and uh, and that's the reason i think i am very much booked for shows that are arab audience wise so, so there are lots of arab audience because they know that they are talking to somebody from them yeah they could bring any other magician but then because i have given them the identity of the arab magician and because there was nobody else that was out there in their traditional dress doing magic that was the path that i decided i'm going to do i didn't want to be looking like david copperfield chris angel david blaine dynamo these guys i wanted to be the arab magician so actually lots of people from outside the country approach me because they see that the identity that i am perceiving or they can perceive me i am showing is interesting we never thought that an marathi guy 
but be a magician, you know? But then of course there are lots of restrictions there also. I cannot go and dance with a dancer on a stage with my Arabic dress because that's sort of disrespectful to the way that I'm dressed or the dress itself or the country that I am from. So I have to perform magic that matches my character. So that was a decision I made and I continued. And of course, today I'm with you and listen. So it's the 1980s. Your mother is in a very poor family in a very remote village called Malkipuram in Andhra Pradesh in India. How did she get to Dubai? She was, she grew up in obviously not a very well-to-do family and it was really, it is a really small town. Um, and her entire family was into farming. Yeah, and she was the first daughter in the family. And after her, she had, uh, her mom had two brothers. <laughs> had two brothers, three brothers, one sister. But yeah, at this point, she is around, must be 18, 19, 20 in that bracket where uh, people around her kind of start telling her about how she can go to Mumbai and it has better opportunities. Uh, city of dreams, right? What do you, what do you say? Sapnoka Sher. Please don't ask me anything. It is spicy. It is. Can I You're try on your own now. Can I try it before I continue? Okay. As long as you can story. Just to keep it uh, consistent. Sapnoka <laughs> Sher. Damn, actually that hit right off the bat. <coughs> if I'm crying... <coughs> That's not because of my mom. Oh, there's a cough now, huh? Always remember. <laughs> Always remember. It's not the cough that carries you off. It's the coffin that carries you off in. Please continue this. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't know if it's a spice or you just don't make sense. <laughs> yeah, she decides to kind of get out of there. Uh, takes a bus, train, whatever mode available, gets to Mumbai with, uh, you know how like parents say, oh, my panch dirham ke saath Dubai hai tha. She literally had, I think, 1,200 rupees that she had saved up for years. Like I'm saying she was saving like 10, 10 rupees, right? And just collecting money at this point to finally someday be able to take the bus and train get to Mumbai with other people and things like that. So she finally finds a group of people, goes with them to Mumbai. <clears throat> and at this point, unfortunately, because nothing is going right, uh, her money gets stolen and she's left with no money. Obviously no phone, no connection with her family. She's alone in Mumbai. And it's not like she had come with a group of friends and they have each other's back. It's one of those things that people are going, I'm going. Uh, I've heard Mumbai has a good life. And whatever the case is, no matter what the scenario, it would be better than being in Malkipuram at this point, right? And she just had to make money. There was no other option at this point. Uh, so yeah, she unfortunately gets robbed and has no money left. At this point, nowhere to stay, no friends. Uh, so she even had a bit of uh, a period where she was homeless. And finally, I think somebody had taken, like a friend had taken her under her roof and she stayed with her. 
and this is where it's just very random and which is why i feel like life is half fate and half choices because she chose to come to mumbai but she never ch- like chose to come to dubai right like she wouldn't have anticipated what happens next <laughs> what happens next was shock she was shocking <laughs> But yeah, uh, she's at this point really depressed, not able to do anything, not making money, uh, working in a few houses here and there just to get. Obviously, at that point, nobody paid much anyway. Uh, this friend finally tells her that some movie shoot is happening, like some Bollywood movie. Obviously, Mumbai, right? <laughs> just something has to be uh, being shot there. So. I I don't know why they go but I'm probably background help I don't know probably you know walk keep walking by in the background or something so she and a few people she knew then in Mumbai take her to the set and this for some reason I don't know this man is there who's from Dubai I completely forgot about I'm, it's there's so many details that it's tough to keep it sequential but apart from all this she had kind of managed to get a passport at this point so when she was in malkiram she had already started the process she knew she needed a passport it's just something told uh, was that that was told around her right that you have to get a passport you have to get a passport she doesn't know the logic at this point but she wants to get a passport so because that's like step 1 to success of some sort uh anyway so at this point uh, coming back to present then this guy comes up to her and asks her if she would like to come to dubai because there's a lot of job opportunities and any normal person would be scared uh, think it's for trafficking or some sort and would not take the chance but i genuinely feel like she just didn't have uh, didn't have anything to lose at this point you know that it was a risk worth taking So she says yes and so he comes up to her and says a family in Dubai needs help uh, would you be interested do you have a passport and she says yeah i do have a passport but it's in malad where she stayed and that she could meet him the next day at the airport so he books the flight does everything asks her to meet her at the airport at this point honestly me listening to this as a kid i was like bro that's damn shady like <laughs> i would never do that but uh, yeah she does decide to go to the airport and surprisingly she does after a lot of tries uh, i'm sure uh, the immigration also was like this makes no sense i'm sure they had a lot of issues but apparently she kept going in the flight being kicked out going in the flight being kicked out finally made it to a flight to dubai and she gets here and uh, starts working in one of the royal family's houses as a nanny and whenever she describes this part of her life like this time period it's always joyous because she was very well taken care of everybody loved her and you know and she was basically surrounded by kids went with went on vacations with them it <laughs> it was very unlike she had seen to this point right she's she hadn't even seen a world outside malkipuram cut to she's kind of living a great life here uh, obviously in the best like best way possible it's obviously a tough life at this point do you ever get the feeling that your mother has defied generations of struggle a lot of people work their entire life to make 
incremental changes in status and wealth but just feels like just through a lot of luck but also determination her intelligence street smartness she's in a way jumped a bit in status and wealth so that she's given you a life that would have been impossible if she had just continued on the path she was in yeah 100% of course like i'm uh, that's one thing i'm it doesn't even i still can't digest it honest honestly rest of her family is still i hope they don't watch this and like not in offensive way at all but she changed her life right and nobody told her nobody around her was doing it but i feel like i've never seen a woman that powerful it's like she decided she wanted to get out and she just did like education didn't matter the fact that they didn't have money didn't matter nothing mattered right she had made up her mind and she somehow made it and uh, and like the fact that i'm here and i've had a good education and honestly never felt deprived of anything growing up is just surprising to me uh, even when i heard these stories when i was a kid it didn't even hit me that we were not doing well because uh, she made sure we never felt that way right and obviously education was very important in our family and for very obvious reasons it's one thing she never got to experience and she kind of spent her life even after coming to dubai uh, trying to educate her brothers back home and her sister back home and making sure that okay if she has money now then maybe they would be able to at least get education being the uh, elder most in the family so yeah i mean if it wasn't for her and the choices she made and the sacrifices she made we i mean of course wouldn't be here and living a great life to be honest like they made sure we were equipped with everything be it like uh, randomly me, me waking up one day and being like i need to learn the guitar i'm going to be a musician i ha- like in the next few weeks i would have a guitar not in like a spoiled way but she was always so passionate about us not having limitations you know and if i st- stop my kids from experiencing how to learn a guitar they might not you know they might miss out on actually being a great like guitarist or a singer or whatever so it was always uh now that i'm older i kind of appreciate the fact that i can see the fact that she tried to do the best she can to make sure we had everything we needed and be well equipped enough to do do whatever you wanted to do what are five books that have completely changed your life and why five books that have completely changed my life uh, i would say uh how to make a spaceship was one uh first i'll name all five and then i'll go deep into every book okay so how to make a spaceship was one second was dreams from my father barack obama and third was a man's search for meaning and fourth was art of happiness and fifth was courage to be disliked okay so first book which was a completely game changer for me how to make a spaceship it made me realize ki we people have so much potential and we hardly achieve 10% of it in our lives that guy in the book basically it's a story of peter diamandis and peter diamandis stimulated the whole space industry just by his will he wanted to become an astronaut but it turned out that he couldn't because he had some defect in his eyes 
but he made sure that he made it easier for other people to become an astronaut now how many people you have come across jo apna sapna pura nahi kar paaye but then they dedicate their whole life to help other people achieve the same dream make it easier for other people so he stimulated the whole private space industry and he started the spacex challenge jisme uh, he started this challenge he didn't even have a single penny with himself but he did some very good marketing ki whoever completes this challenge gets around 10 million dollars to make their own spaceship and reach the kalman line kalman line is basically where earth finishes and space starts so it would be very first privately built spaceship and isse pehle space sirf पब्लिक गवर्नमेंट कंपनीज का ही वो था गेम बिकॉज टैक्स मनी से ही आप स्पेस एक्सप्लोरेशन कर सकते थे बट हेयर दिस गायल हैंडेडली ब्रॉड स्पेस इन टू प्राइवेट इंडस्ट्री एंड सो मेनी पीपल गॉट इन टू दैट रेस इंडिया से भी काफी सारे देर वर पार्टिसिपेंट्स बट दे कुडेंट मेक इट टू द फाइनल स्टेज बट द विनर ऑफ दैट कॉम्पिटिशन गेव अस वर्जन अटलांटिक विच इज गोन बी द फ्यूचर ऑफ स्पेस टूरिज्म काइंड ऑफ थिंग द वे दे आर मेकिंग प्रोग्रेस and he even approached elon musk and that time elon musk was even you know elon musk supported him a lot but he was working on his own project spacex jab shuru hi hua tha when he approached elon musk so because of him people started dreaming of making their own spaceships and there are so many different companies now in america itself who are trying to make their own launches for uh, commercial satellites so basically commercial satellites ko bhi space mein bhejna was very expensive till the time it was controlled by public agencies government agencies but a privatized hone ki wajah se rates are dropping down schools are sending satellites designed by kids just to inspire kids now imagine that how cool is that so because of this single guy he started international space university jahan pe bachche aake they are they study their studies are very much focused towards becoming a space scientist or an astronaut and his spacex is still running it's still running and it is still solving a lot of issues around the world uh, one of the one of the india you know one of the modern issues was women safety in india so spacex funded that issue as well and there was a team which came up with an idea and they won the spacex prize and everything so it's a very good initiative because the thing is our society is run by a very capitalistic model ki jisme profit hai bas usi mein hi sara labor aur sari energy use ho rahi hai so you need some outside incentive ki people aur logo ki so that people focus on other problems as well sirf you know ad clicking pe hamare zyada tar brain jitne bhi hamare intelligent brains hai wo sab ad click karwane pe lage hue hai tumse they are not getting utilized anywhere else so spacex is creating that very good initiative so just just from his life i learned that okay yes life is not about just going to work and having fun on the weekend he inspired me so much Then, उसके बाद ये बिलीफ मेरा ओवर स्ट्रॉन्ग हो गया वेन आई रेड ड्रीम्स फ्रॉम माई फादर बराक ओबामा की जो बुक थी तो इन दैट बुक अ वेरी यू नो प्रिविलेज अमेरिकन लाइक मोस्ट ऑफ द अमेरिकन आर विद द लाइफ स्टाइल एंड एवरीथिंग एंड ही वेंट बैक टू केनिया टू विजिट हिज डैड साइड वाली फैमिली एंड ही वॉज यू शॉक्ड एक कमरे में एट पीपल आर स्लीपिंग एंड ही रियलाइज हाउ फॉर्चुनेट ही वॉज एंड उस स्टोरी से एक चीज जो मेरे को बहुत ज्यादा टच करी वेन ही वॉज टॉकिंग टू हिज ग्रैंड मॉम एंड अपनी ग्रैंड मॉम से बात कर रहा था एंड दे वर टॉकिंग अबाउट समथिंग इमोशनल एंड हिज ग्रैंड मॉम टोल्ड हिम की बिफोर द यूरोपियंस केम टू अफ्रीका देर वॉज नो कॉन्सेप्ट ऑफ रिच और पुअर बिकॉज एवरी वन हैड सेम थिंग्स 
But once people started seeing these white men coming in, you know, people from West coming in, wearing these nice suits, nice Walkman, that is when people started realizing, oh my God, we are poor. So how, you know, that simple material thing shifted the whole mindset of a community. And that's how, uh, and that's how the African community started worshipping actually the Western community. Okay, yeah, and then slave trading and everything started. But uh, that incident shook Obama a lot going to his native country and seeing what problems they are facing. So he came back and he was like, Ki, I'm going to do something for my community. And uh, he worked a lot. He organized a lot of rallies for the rights of black people. And in, in his book, you can see even, you know, some of his biggest failures as well. Like itni badi ek, usne gathering organized kari thi where the mayor was supposed to come and the mayor came stood there for 10 seconds and one of the guys from the gathering shouted at the mayor in anger and the mayor left so all his hard work went to waste usne puri gathering kyunki mayor sirf 10 seconds ke liye mayor ko jis cheez ke liye convince karna tha uske liye wo log kar hi nahi paye so he goes deep into his failures but it's really touching that he didn't give up ki mai kyun karu in logo ke liye who are you know, who are not being sensible ki kaise hum non-violently or bina ke bhi apna kaam karwa sakte hai. Just, being, just by being peaceful. So, I uh, really like his ideology and uh, he, was, he was very much uh, a follower of Martin Luther King and very much influenced by Mahatma Gandhi and Malcolm X. So, Mahatma Gandhi is a big influence on my life as well. And that is when I started questioning how can I solve some problems in India by sitting in UK. And I started my YouTube channel because I thought ki mein us time self-help bhi padna shuru kar diya tha. So I thought ki this knowledge is so crucial for people in India to learn and understand and it can really help other people. And I saw ki YouTube pe there were already so many YouTube channels which were already summarizing books. So basically I saw there was a little gap ki book ko summarize karna is a different thing and logo ko batana how to actually implement things from those books in your own life is a very different thing which no one was doing because most of the readers they read the book bahut achhi book thi close the book and they pick up the next book so no one is implementing even 10% of what they read and this is where I thought ki I can improve my own life by implementing this stuff and then talking about what all changes I saw and then help inspiring other people to implement as well. So that was a very good push. Uh, third book, The Art of Happiness. Art of Happiness was very, very, uh, you know, it was a very, that book made me very emotionally strong because uh, that book made me realize the importance of humility and the importance of seeing everyone with an equal eye. So Dalai Lama uh, talks, Usme kya hai? Us book mein basically there's this guy who goes to Dalai Lama and takes his interviews and asks him questions about every aspect of life from losing people to, you know, how to maintain relationships, how to get over past everything. So what Dalai Lama said was that he opens up with everyone and he opens up with everyone. He doesn't hide anything from anyone because he believes that most of the humans are good by heart, good by nature, and they will never break your trust. Yes, two out of 10 people will, but that is kind of a tax you're paying to build eight strong relationships. And that was a very much of a turning point in my life. I started becoming more social and as it gave me a sense of freedom. We are living in a very positive world. We are living in a very trustworthy world you can open up with people you can that is how i started becoming more vulnerable with my content as well 
I started talking about everything in my life, like, uh, you know, how I'm practicing NoFap or how I lost my dad or all the struggles I went through when I was studying in UK, all the financial struggles. I started becoming more vulnerable. That book taught me that vulnerability connects people. It creates a very strong bond. If you vulnerable, they start seeing you from a very trustworthy eye. And they start becoming vulnerable with you. And that is something which is uh, helping me in my mentorship programs as well. Because in mentorship program, you need to create that bond so that people open up. Jab tak log open up honge, I can't help them. So that, uh, that has been very helpful. Uske baad fourth book thi, A Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning is a very stoic book. It's a very philosophical book. It's about, uh, it's a, there's a very funny incident about this book. So I was in the train and I was reading this book. And uh, so this Indian air hostess comes and sit by my side. And she was like, what are you reading? And I was like, uh, I'm, uh, I'm reading this book about concentration camps. And uh, I don't know if it's funny from my side or not, but she was like, concentration camps? Oh, where yoga meditation? Ho hoti hai. I, was like, I was like, not that. I was like, not that. That's, that's the, you know, uh, I feel the, this simply shows the, uh, shows the, uh, how should I say that people are still not aware of what happened in the world war. That is why we see a lot of right-wing movements springing up in so many countries because people don't know what the world has already seen through right-wing movements. Because if we go to India, then yes, we have history, but we have learned how innocent Indian people were and how they were ruled by so many dynasties. But uh, we are never, you know, we are never... We are never taught the important moral lessons from history, from Western history, especially I would say that the world wars we they have a lot of moral lessons. Our independence movement may be many moral lessons. But again, I think that as we have studied in India, end is the feeling that my and everyone came and looted my country. <laughs> that is the only feeling and the only thing I remember after uh, studying all the history from my, you know, from my childhood. But I feel that educating people about modern history, especially in the 20th century, the world wars it's very, very important. So that book, uh, in that book, basically the guy, the main guy who's in the Victor Frankl, uh, Dr. Victor Frankl, he loses everyone from his family uh, and uh, he's put in a concentration camp. He sees people, he sees optimistic people dying in front of him. And that is where it showed me how optimism can go toxic as well. Because optimistic people used to think next Christmas se pehle we'll get out. Next Christmas tha, but they never got out. And they started losing hope. Whereas not pessimistic, but people who soaked in the reality that this is not in our control. The only thing in our control is just survive. We don't know when we are going to get out. So that was very touching that even if you lose everything in your life, that gives you courage as well. You know, ki even if you lose everything in your life, you will you will still have you can still find meaning through your mind through your skills and through your labor and this is one thing which i picked up from that book michael holding in the movie uh, when he was commenting on the statement that kofi annan had made when he said that that's not cricket michael holding had said that clearly cricket means something more than a game that deserves to be preserved and even if you look at cricket history it always feels like the best cricketers out there always stood for something more than just the game 
And you had mentioned WG Grace and WG Grace, of course, had... He stood for cheating and class and class problems <laughs> and being a scammer. Well, in a way, he was a, he was a symbol for the Victorian era in England. And in a way, these best cricketers, they often resemble the zeitgeist of the country, whether positive or negative. Um, and the same applies for Dennis Lilly with Australia. You have written a book about uh, the Lilly of Campbellfield and uh, Martin Crowe with New Zealand or George Headley or Maeve Richards with West Indies. And I feel now Virat Kohli with India. So then the question that arises from all of this is, what is cricket to you? Is it just another silly game? Uh, is it just another bat and ball game? Often you joke about it. Or do you feel like it actually holds a lot more meaning and it needs to be preserved like Michael Holding suggests? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Michael Holding at a certain point. But I do think that basketball and football and maybe, you know, there's probably a few other great team sports out there that also have an incredible role to play. Uh, you know, basketball is an incredible sport in the teamwork and cooperation that you need to have. Football is an incredible sport in that you can't really have a weak link um, type of player, um, you know, and what they do for individual communities and what they do for nations. So I don't think cricket's unique. Um, it's probably a very different sport because it's so much older. I mean, you talk about WD Grace. He's basically the first ever global sporting superstar. You know, in his era, he was famous. It's not like some other, you know, there, there had been famous athletes before him, but a lot of them were famous years later. But he was the first one that then and there traveled the whole world playing cricket in a time when traveling the world was not easy at all. Um, was famous in America and was famous in yeah, South America and Africa and Australia and Asia. Uh, so I do think cricket is different, but realistically at a, at a certain level, I'm not, I, I think what cricket has allowed for, and this is what has frustrated me about the way the game has grown is that for whatever reason, cricket is involved in nation building, you know, so Victor Trumper is probably maybe the Sachin of, 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 um, of uh, India in that Australia had had some good cricketers before him. They'd won the Ashes. They'd had the demon Fred Spofford. Victor Trumper, you know, WG Gray said, you're the person taking over my legacy, right? It wasn't just even you're the best cricketer in the world. Cricket is in your hands, Victor. And it turns out that he wasn't even the best batter of his generation. It was probably Jack Hobbs. But to Australians, that, at that same period, Australia was, being, was literally becoming Australia. Right, it was federated in 1901, and I think uh, I can't remember the exact year that that Grace had that conversation with Trumper, but it was 1900 or 1899. Do you know what I mean? It was like that era. Australia is becoming a country, and in the sport that we have chosen to be our national sport at that time, we have some someone quite special. And if you then you go forward to the next big boom that Australia has, sort of is. Is WG great? Is, sorry, is Don Bradman. And then in Don Bradman, what do you have? If Victor Trumper wasn't quite the best player in the world, he might have been one of the most respected. Don Bradman's the best player that had ever played the game then and might still be, right? So now Australia has this incredible figure that is completely sort of transferring how they feel about themselves, who happens to come from the Depression. Then you go forward to probably Dennis Lilly is the next major one. What's Dennis Lilly? Well, Trumper had this sort of Australian slash English style about him. Don Bradman was almost English in some ways, in, in some of the ways that he talked and everything. 
Dennis Lilly is never going to get confused for an English person. He's Australian. He looked like the Australian. He's looked like the Australian men in rock bands. Had the big hair. He's now representing Australia. So you look at those three cricketers, different generations, years, decades between them, completely different kinds of people. Through cricket, they allowed uh, the country to feel different about itself. Right. You then go to the West Indies and you have Leary Constantine and George Headley and then Frank Worrell. Go forward to Viv Richards, you know, even even um, even perhaps Chris Gale. To this, you have these people who represent that, in this case, not a country, but that region and what it means to be West Indian, right? Cricket has allowed that because it's been such a national sport. It's not that football doesn't have this. It's not that Lionel Messi is an incredible figure in Argentina, but... They don't get to see him week after week playing for them. He doesn't don the badge very often, right? And a lot of them are friendly games. Cricket, because of that national uh, ability, you know, you look at New Zealand, you know, there's a great story about, uh, you know, Bob Blair and Bert Sutcliffe, one of which clearly had concussion and shouldn't have been on the field. And Bob Blair, whose fiance had died the day before. And they bat together in a 10th wicket partnership when New Zealand are over 100 runs behind and it doesn't matter. They're not going to beat South Africa, right? That defines how New Zealanders feel about themselves. The same way now that it probably doesn't happen as much in the Western countries, right? But it does happen in India. Virat Kohli defines the way that Indians feel about themselves in the way that Sachin did, in the way that Gavaskar did, right? In the way that the, you know, that the spinners, the spinning quartet did back in the day. And the same with Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka wants to be Mahela. Sri Lanka wants to be Kumar Sangakkara, right? Sri Lanka wants to be the Arjuna Ranatunga of the of 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 the Asian area. You know, Pakistan. One half of Pakistan wants to be Mizbah, and the other half of Pakistan wants to be Shahid Afridi. It builds something within nations that we're probably going to lose one day as it we go towards league cricket. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But even if we lose it and cricket becomes a different sport, we could tell the history of nations through cricketers and through cricketing eras and through how much they struggled and how much they weren't taken seriously by other countries and all these things. And you can see it in a way that isn't always readily available through art. And, you know, I always say that, you know, Bradman was... Bradman was Australia's great cricketer at the same time that Errol Flynn was a major movie star. Australians kind of heard Errol Flynn talk with an English accent and play Robin Hood. He's not playing Ned Kelly, right? He's not playing Australian things. And Don Bradman is going out and scoring almost double what Wally, Walter Hammond can score. Um, uh, uh, sorry, Hammond can score um, without while playing against him, while wearing the badge, while wearing the hat, right? There's something about that that cricket has always had. And then there is the, a lot of sports are just, easily accessible, right? So sports are made to be, you know, basketball is made to be easily accessible. Football is made to be easily accessible. Cricket makes you work for it, right? Which is part of the problem, which is why not as many nations play it. Although a lot of that has to do with the governance of the sport. Cricket makes you invest in it, right? That is something that is, I, I think that's a special part of cricket. Again, um, I'm not into the whole cricket civilizes people and all this sort of stuff. I mean, you know, famously Robert Mugabe said cricket civilizes people and I want us to be 
a nation of gentlemen. I think once Robert Mugabe said that quote, it sort of tells you how nonsensical the gentleman's game is. And as I mean, the phrase itself, the gentleman's game, they don't mean working class people. They didn't mean non-white people. They specifically meant people that went to Oxford and or, or Harrow and Eton and those sorts of places. Um, so, but cricket has the ability sort of beyond that to break through and it does have incredible moments of national importance and nation building have all come from this sport. And I don't think you can ignore that. I just done a podcast series on, I just done a podcast series on um, the first time teams beat England. We're talking about a sport that is an empire sport, a Commonwealth sport. How big is that for the first time Australia stood out on a field and beat a team called England? How big was it when New Zealand managed to do it, when India managed to do it, when, you know, Sri Lanka managed to do it? I mean, how long after Churchill was involved in the Bengali famines were the could the Indians beat the England cricket team? I mean, what a fucking finger in their face that is, right? You know, you... That's one of the incredible things is there's this built-in narrative and everything in it. And then you've got the sport itself. We play on a living, breathing field. It does not give a fuck where you're from. It does not care about what happened five minutes ago. The weather has changed. The ball has changed. And now the ball is going to do something completely different. And the game is going to be something completely different. Uh, you know, basketball courts don't really change that much, right? Football fields, it either rains or it doesn't rain. Cricket, the sun's out and suddenly the pitch is acting differently. And now we've got foot marks and this is happening. What an incredible sport that is that, you know, the ball can land in the exact same spot twice and can behave completely differently. You know, baseball, what a magnificent sport baseball is, but baseball's 2D. The ball don't bounce and you don't hit the ball backwards. What a complex game cricket is. Um, and, you know, it's, I always say that cricket is, it's done everything it can to sort of overcome the worst of humanity and still be absolutely brilliant. And I love the fact that when cricket, when test cricket came along, people in England said, no one will ever follow a game that goes for three days. And we're still saying that 140 years later, <laughs> we're still having the same argument. We had cricket never fit in. And yet here we are. They say you can open any page of the Gita and you will get the answer that you're looking for. Gaur Gopal Das has gone on record to say that the Bhagavad Gita is not a religious book. It's a book about life. So if you had to give a synopsis of the Gita to someone who hasn't read it, what is the Gita about and what is the key message in it? Okay. Yeah, Bhagavad Gita is an interesting book. First of all, what I would like to mention is the background of Bhagavad Gita. So this is, I'm pretty sure every Indian would have heard the Mahabharata or watched Mahabharata knows how the story is going. So when the Pandavas, they were, uh, you know, in a way destined to fight the Kauravas because they went on the exile. They followed all the uh, impositions by the Kauravas. Uh, and they went to exile. They did uh, the last year, Agnyatavas, where they had to be covered. And if they were found, they again had to go to another exile. That was the condition. And they fulfilled everything for 14 years. And then when they came back, Still, the Kauravas said, we cannot give you the kingdom back. So that time, um, and what I like about the Pandavas is that they're very noble. Though Bhima and Arjuna wanted to go and fight, but Yudhishthira said, no, they are our brothers. Let's first try for peace. So they sent uh, Krishna also as a peace messenger. 
but uh, Kauravas didn't heed. And finally, they Krishna told them that they there's no other option apart from war, because they tried everything. And Duryodhana, the head of the Kaurava team, he said, "I cannot give even that much land to the Pandavas upon which a head of Nil can rest. What well, that means, like a dot of land." So, because the Pandavas said, you keep the kingdom and we are happy, because we are Kshatriya by nature, Kshatriya means they have to rule over something and they have to protect that area. So, they said, at least you give us five villages. That's a pretty good deal. But uh, Duryodhana said, I cannot give even, uh, even a small amount, that much amount of land upon which the head of needle can rest. So, then war was destined and then uh, Pandavas were also very much uh, eager to uh, I mean because Krishna wanted the war it was Dharma Yudh we know of all the injustices uh, which the Pandavas underwent there was cheating in uh, in the game and there was disrobing of Draupadi in the Sabha of generals and no none of them did anything so the war had to happen because if uh, you know war doesn't happen then the Adharma will rule over Dharma and when Duryodhana was ruling Draupadi is being disturbed in the assembly of generals. So it's not a very good example. What can you expect in future? So then war had to happen and Pandavas gathered their army and Kauravas gathered their army and they came to uh, battle. And one more thing I would like to mention, the Vedic culture, how they would battle is even, this was even prevalent thousand years back when Alexander the Great, he came towards the Indian uh, subcontinent he saw when Chandragupta Maurya's team, they would fight. They would always take their soldiers and the, the king, all of them would have battle outside the kingdom so that the innocent people are not hurt. But today when you know wars happen, they shoot missile or they first destroy the capital with the innocent women, children, old people who have nothing to do with the war. So Alexander the Great, he very much appreciated because the you know Chandragupta Maurya's army was headed headed by Chanakya Pandit, he was like the uh, guide for them, right? So so similarly, they actually went to a place called Kurukshetra, which is supposed which is called one of the holy lands in India, and they wanted to have a face off there. So Arjuna was very confident at the beginning, and he told Krishna, Krishna, you take my chariot in between the both the armies, just so that I can analyze both the parties. Let me see who all are who are, who all have assembled on the Kaurava side and who all have assembled on the Pandava side and we can get some strategy and we can defeat them. He was very confident. He was like a gold medalist, you know, IIT gold medalist, Arjuna. So when he when Krishna took Arjuna in uh, between the bat, uh, both the teams, and Arjuna when he saw the Kaurava party, he saw Bhishma, his own, uh, you know, uh, they're all the same family, the family members. And he saw Drona, his teacher, his grandfather, his teacher, his brothers, cousins, even Duryodhana is his own cousin. So then he lost all confidence. He thought, is there really a necessity for war? Can't we? Then he gives many, many uh, arguments to Krishna saying that, you know, best is not to fight. You know, let Karvas enjoy the kingdom and we'll, I'll take sannyas. I will go to the forest and I'll just beg arms and survive. So like that, he gave many arguments that if if the kings die on the other side, who will take care of the wives? Then if wives are not taken care, the women will be exploited. 
then there'll be varnashankara population varnashankara population means uh, that population which is not which is by illicit affairs so such population create havoc in society so he gives very nice arguments saying that if we have this war there will be a societal social degradation and krishna heard all of this and then he speaks the gita so at this time arjuna tells krishna that my gandiva is slipping is like you know a consistent topper in a prestigious university on the final exam he's saying you know i'm i'm getting nervous right so it's uh, it's something something to cope up with and we all will be in that situation today or tomorrow they were on an external battlefield kurukshetra but we have a, our internal battles right we always have a choice between uh, the vice and virtue right so in this way actually bhagavad gita then uh, i was talking about arjuna so arjuna said my gandiva is slipping my uh, you know my hairs are standing on end i'm feeling nervous my tea, uh, my lips are becoming dry so he says he gives a big description of how he's feeling that uh, inferiority complex now it's not actually inferiority complex he says how he's feeling uh, too ang- anxious he's overridden with anxieties so basically he's going into depression that is the today's term when nothing works out people go into depression so arjuna was somewhat in that state so then krishna speaks the bhagavad gita and he gives different different concepts of he gives the science of soul and then he gives he talks about karma yoga and he talks about uh, controlling the mind then he talks about bhakti yoga he also talks about gyana yoga knowledge he talks about sankhya in, in a way that you know this is all the material world everything is made up of matter so in this way he actually talks about different different concepts in the gita if, which if someone undergoes and understands he can actually become victorious like arjuna after the war once arjuna heard the gita he became so confident and towards end there's a verse actually gita is a book which is the entire conversation though it's uh, between krishna and arjuna it's actually being envisioned by sanjaya and he's telling to dhritarashtra what is happening he had that power he could see the war from the palace so sanjaya was telling everything to dhritarashtra because dhritarashtra was blind right so towards the end sanjaya remarks he tells wherever there is arjuna a devotee like arjuna and wherever there is krishna in such a place there is always victory there is always prosperity and there is always opulence so everyone is looking for this right so when we understand and learn and apply the teachings of the gita that time we are bound to be unaffected by suffering we are bound to be unaffected by things of this world but be happy and uh, throughout be happy throughout our lives we can do, we can do that we can be peaceful because we cannot say that there is not going to be a havoc in our life tomorrow right there is going to be a conflict today there is going to be havoc tomorrow disaster day after tomorrow but krishna actually helps us to rise ourselves beyond these problems and stay aloof from these problems being unaffected by the problems for the song jalebi baby tasha chose to not give you feature credits and he in fact i think it i would put it as a footnote in a video description so not really credits as such and if you ask me your contribution to the song is the most significant part it is mm. the main hook mm. it is the part that everyone remembers yes um it is what the song is named after as well so 
Sure. I mean, this is a gray area because if Tasha really wants to argue it, then he can say that a song is a composite of many different elements. If you really quantify it, then that portion will become a very small part of it. But to everyone else, we all know that, of course, you are equally a part of this song. So this is an issue that has persisted in the music industry for the longest amount of time. I mean, Rolling Stones, Beatles, even they have issues with accreditation as well. Do you think there is a way moving forward to actually set some kind of guidelines so that this doesn't happen? Or do you think just this, the creative process that's involved in making a song, making music, do you think we'll always have these issues as we go along now that you've been in the thick of one? Yeah. Yeah. So going back to the tissue issue, like, yeah, it came to me as a big surprise. Uh, because uh, just to give you some background, I was originally, uh, when I was originally contacted by Tesher and uh, his team, uh, they pretty much initially just told me that I was going to sing background vocals and I was going to be one amongst many singers. And this was during lockdown. I was in Dubai and I didn't, I didn't think much of it. I said, you know what, like, uh, he's a Canadian. Uh, and I was like, you know, let's just uh, help a fellow Canadian musician out. Like, how does it hurt? I'm at home. I have my recording set up. So I just... Uh, did my parts and sent it to him. The next thing I know is the song was released. And the funny thing is, I, you know, generally when I work with musicians, there's this code of conduct or there's this, uh, sometimes even, not, it's not everything has to be put on paper. It's like understood. There's this, you know, ethical thing where it's like, okay, thanks for sending your vocals. Uh, you know, here's the, so here's the final mix. How do you feel about it? Like this, this is how your vocals are going to sound. I, do you approve? Like, do you want, do you believe your vocals sound okay or whatever? You know, there's a basic a conversation that happens between two professional musicians. I think with Tesher, the weird part was after I sent my vocals, I never heard back from him. And the next thing I know is the song is out. And I didn't even know the song was out. Actually, a fan, a couple of my fans and followers from Instagram wrote to me saying that, is that your voice in the Jalebi Baby track? And I was like, oh, how do you know? Because I didn't, I didn't make a, I, I didn't make an announcement that I was part of Tesher's project whatsoever. It was a surprise, actually. I was a little taken aback. I said, no, no, Tesher is out with the song and the, the hook sounds like your voice. And that's what really got to me because first of all, there was no, uh, I think I was a little surprised that he didn't want to, uh, you know, uh, credit me. He didn't want to mention me. Even in his social media, Instagram accounts, he put out the song. There was no mention that Shweta Subramanian sang the, you know, the hook line. And um, so the, I, I was just a little appalled by that behavior. I remember like my manager reached out to his management and uh, they were under the argument that I've just sang uh, background vocals, right? And, uh, and this is an argument that continues to date because a lot of people everywhere I go. Now, fortunately, Dubai has been very supportive. The media here has been great. They've all, you know, interviewed me. I've been in different media channels, newspapers, radio stations, and they've all been promoting the fact that, you know, I'm the singer of Jalebi Baby and I've sang the hook of Jalebi Baby. So now a lot of people know this. So uh, I just, I don't know if it's ignorance or if it's just, you know, he doesn't want to acknowledge it. But I, I just found it surprising that uh, uh, something that's so obvious to everybody that I've sang the hook of the song. The title is called Jalebi Baby. It was only right to credit me as a featured vocalist and not just a background vocalist or, you know, uh, or sort of not give that, uh, you know, not put, not put the spotlight on it. So I don't know what's causing this. And I'm still waiting to hear from Tesher on why he's, why he's done that. I've not heard back from him. I'd reached out to him many number of times. Uh, didn't hear back. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I, I'm a believer of karma. So I, I just sometimes think like, you know what, it's, it's, it's an experience. I learned from it. And maybe I'll do things a little differently moving forward. 
but rightfully so. Everywhere I go, it feels really good when people say, you know what, you you are the one who made the song. Like it's your voice that made the song. Yes, all due to all credit to Tashir for producing it, being the mastermind behind it. He's a supremely talented uh, composer and producer. I give him all credit for that. Not of course, of course, you can't take take that away from him. Uh, it's his idea, uh, but it's just that it would be nice to share the limelight a little bit with you know somebody who's also given some spark to your song, you know, with their voice. So that's that's the only thing I wish was done a little bit better. But yeah, it is what it is. And to answer your question, that this has been happening in the industry, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, I guess what makes it complicated is there there are no set. uh you know uh, rules in place or and and i've heard that uh, that even in the past legendary artists have had these problems you know where somebody's not credited and this and that and it's sad i i really hope i don't know maybe there should be like a collective union like all of us should like start like you know this organization where we we believe that artists are credited more fairly uh because it's 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 it it hurts to be in this position you know it really does because see you you put in a lot of work and end of the day I believe that it's it's only fair that everyone should be happy and everyone you know should 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 uh, uh, earn their share of popularity and earn their share of monies as well right and when you're not credited properly you lose a big chunk of both neither are you getting the popularity neither are you getting the the monies right you are you're taking a huge share of pie to yourself so i think if 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 things can change in terms of uh, crediting like you know if we can maybe have these if these rules can change a little bit I think it'll make the world a much better place, especially for musicians. And I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Honestly, I don't have an answer to that. Fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. The revolution is going to start from this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Years later, when they look back, they're like, "This is the episode." This is the episode. Yeah, yeah, I really hope so. I really hope. Yeah. So. Let's keep economics aside for a moment. Sure. Ralph Waldo Emerson had once said that money often costs too much. Can you comment on the psychological impact of money? Does money influence the way people? think and feel and as a follow up to that what do you think is the link between money and power do you think they work hand in hand i'm sure we can spend hours just discussing this one question it's a 24 hour podcast <laughs> <laughs> but let's start with the first idea of of a hedonic treadmill so this idea came around uh call it about 30 to 40 years ago with um with campbell and the idea is on this hedonic treadmill humans regulate emotions and go from a positive emotion or a negative emotion very quickly to a flatline base what that does is if you experience a very big expression of positive emotion over time that positive emotion dwindles down and you have a flatline idea a flatline emotion base and similarly with sort of a trauma uh, over time that trauma travels and you reach away from that trough into some sort of a, a straight line emotional base. So this hedonic treadmill idea was that over time even after accruing enough money you realize that your happiness eventually comes down to a flat line structure. So initially it was linked to an idea of increased happiness but over time that increased happiness has now come to flat surface level and then the cycle transcends again where more money is required to come back to that high of happiness that you had attained in the past and this cycle of increased money that links to an increase in happiness it then fizzles out over time and then asks for more money 
uh, continues. And that's sort of the idea of the hedonic treadmill is that you keep walking on this cyclic uh, process of money and it comes back to, yes, in the end, money does cost too much. It costs you an entirety of psychological impact. To understand the sort of your second idea of psychological impact and money, um, let's take a thought experiment into play. Um, let's give a child or let's give two children um, a set of money and ask them to spend it on what they prefer and what they like the most. So we'll find two children, um, we'll give them, call it $5, and ask them to run and buy whatever they can find and buy. Oftentimes you notice that um, the, goods in, the goods that purchased by children are somewhat similar in a sense that it's generally some sort of consumable that will over time um, increase their happiness after they've consumed it. And um, over time, they realized that, oh, this was a great exercise and they were really happy with it. And they will not generally come back and ask for more because they had that sort of increase in happiness and they were happy with it and they're continuing to be happy. Um, with adults, it's sort of flipped around. This research um, showed once that if you give two adults a similar amount of money, generally speaking, um, the goods and services that they, they go ahead and buy with this money are very, very and they um, really depend on the interests and the alignments of the humans in, in conversation. So sometimes you might find that this money was spent on consumables. Sometimes uh, you might find that it was held safely for future use. And uh, on other occasions, you might just find that people lost the idea of the money and probably just lost the money itself. So they put it in their pocket, realize that, oh, I reached this shop. I've now don't have the same jacket that I was wearing and this money was head, held there and then over time they just find the money much later. Uh, this is all to come back and show that the idea of happiness is a lot similar when you are a child. But the idea of happiness grows varied and the notion of happiness obtained can change very quickly in adults. So this hand-in-hand -hand notion of money and happiness really starts intensifying in adults because Adults start conflating money with an equation of what they can purchase or what they can value. And this psychological interpretation of money and happiness then increases as you age. And that's the idea of this um, hedonic treadmill that we discussed about as well. On the flip side, you had um, Daniel Kahneman, um, who was a Nobel laureate in 2002, who wrote a paper in 2010. And the paper was about this equation and he had about a 1.3 million data points so a rather large subset of data where he talked about the increase in money and the increase in happiness in individuals up to a certain threshold after which the diminishing value of money came to play and so the increase in happiness was not as much as it was for the initial threshold and i think he changed the threshold depending on which nation was observed but in the u.s it was somewhere um, in the tens of thousands of dollars in the upper tens of thousands of dollars and over time, he realized that after that sort of threshold, people didn't value happiness as much. If they were given the same incremental dollar, the increase in happiness was not as much as when they were given the first dollar. And so on one side, you have this idea of, oh, there is this finite theory that regardless of when I give you money, there's an increase in happiness. And then over time, that happiness sort of fizzles out. On the other side, you have Daniel Kahneman's theory, which has that over a certain threshold, 
incremental money doesn't really influence your happiness anymore. And so there's always a, a big question of what influence does money have on happiness. You have songs like um, Lag Ja Gale, Aapki Nazarone Samja, all that. So you have the a portion in Aapki Nazarone Samja where it is, I'm singing like how the olden people sang it. So this is how conventionally people would have sang yeah. what you consider a good singing voice. This is how they would yeah. sing. Yeah. Uh, they sang it like, hai aapka ye if I was putting my throne, like now I've become a bit more seasoned and my voice has gone through a change, obviously it matures. But at that point, I would have been like, Ji hami manzoor hai aapka ye faisla Ji hami manzoor hai aapka you understood the difference, yeah. right? They were a bit more softer. My voice tends to go a bit more rough. But I like it. It's like, it's very powerful. It reaches your soul. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that, that would be the basic conventional difference in both the styles. But I think there are people who still go with the softer version of the song. As in, there's a song like, Ajeeb um, Adasta Hai Ye. In that she sung it very frail and very, I mean, not frail, I wouldn't call it frail, but a very, How dare you? <laughs> yeah. you know, very soft, Sweet, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's mellow, like, she sings, yeah. Mubarake tum hi ke tum, kisi ke noor ho gai. That's how she sung it. How would you do it? I would completely open it up. I would have, I mean, I've done a cover of this and I've gone all, Mubarake tum hi ke tum. Kisi ke noor ho gaye, kisi ke itne paas ho, ke sab se dur ho gaye. Ajeeb daasata hai ye, kaha shuru kaha khatam, ye manzile hai kaun se. This one I will genuinely <laughs> applaud for. It's crazy to think that this kind of a voice, people would not consider singing voice. This is actually very crazy. Can you imagine the number of people whose probably dreams and hopes have been squashed and they've been told they're not a good singer just because it's slightly husky if that's the word you want to use for it. That's yeah. crazy to think. But right now, husky voice is so much in demand. As in all the latest TV shows, you have ZTV, you have Ananya Chakravarti, who's, who's raving right now because she's got a cracked husky voice. And I'm so happy. I'm so elated that the times have changed and now people can just sing with whatever voice they have, which is exactly me answering your question, which you asked me initially, that you don't have to be born with a voice to sing. You can just develop it. Yeah, you need to have an inner knack, but anyone can sing. 